Well, that was a wonder, wonderful time of singing together. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be looking at most of that chapter this morning. Interestingly, the next number of messages are going to be uh, centered very much so on the humanity of Christ. I know we just did that as steadfast, so that was God's plan um, for us to continue on. As you're finding Matthew 1, let me talk to you about what the spiritual stumbling block to the unsaved Jew today is. The spiritual stumbling block to the unsaved Jew is a refusal to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the King promised in the Old Testament. That is the spiritual stumbling block. Eventually in his ministry, Jesus pronounced a curse on national Israel that they would not see him again until a remnant of them said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Zechariah 12.10 records the future fulfillment of that coming confession of faith. But in the meantime, during the church age, in which national Israel is not the primary focus of God's redemptive plan, God has given the gospel of Matthew, at least in part, to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah to the Jewish reader. And of course, the word is for all of us, but that's a major, major purpose. I'll give you one example of how the gospel of Matthew works. Dr. Alfred Ethersheim was born into a traditional Jewish family in Vienna, Austria in 1825. As a Jew, he read the Gospel of Matthew. And through the Gospel of Matthew, by the time he finished studying this Gospel, he was convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of David, he is the hope of Israel, and Alfred Edersheim came to saving faith in Christ. He ended up serving in pastoral ministry in both Scotland and England. He studied at Cambridge and at Oxford. And really, his whole life's work was to write on the life of Christ. His most influential work was called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he called this the defense for my life. That this is why he has spiritual life. And he wrote this about Jesus as the Messiah. He was the one perfect man. The ideal of humanity. His doctrine. The one absolute teaching. The world has known none other. None equal. And the world has owned it, if not by testimony of word, yet by evidence of facts. If he be not the Messiah, he has at least thus far done the Messiah's work. If he be not the Messiah, there has at least been none other before or after him. If he be not the Messiah, the world has not and never can have a Messiah. Very clear. So who is the Messiah? The term Messiah is from the Hebrew word Mashiach, means anointed or the anointed one. This word is rendered into Greek as Christos from the root verb krio, which means to anoint. And you can hear the word Christ in there, of course. So in this sense, it's essentially the same thing to say that Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is the Christ. The specific term Mashiach, the anointed one, It appears in the Old Testament almost always referring to the ruling king at the time, to Saul or David or a later Davidic king. As God's representative before the people, the king is the Lord's anointed. 
And by the way, this is never used in the absolute form in the Old Testament of the anointed one. Because there's only one person who fits that bill. What is the anointing here? Well, this originally referred to the physical anointing with oil that was used as the official act of making the man king of Israel. Making this man king. It was, it was the official way to recognize him. But then the term took on a more overarching significance as one who's chosen and appointed by God to be his instrument. The patriarchs are referred to as anointed ones in Psalm 105. Even Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, could be called Yahweh's anointed in Isaiah 45 since he was God's agent to deliver Israel from her Babylonian captivity. The only Old Testament passage to actually use the term specific to a coming future Messiah is Daniel 9, 25 and 26, where the chronology of 70 weeks is set out between the decree to rebuild the temple and the coming of a, an, an anointed prince or the Messiah, the prince. But the idea of a coming Messiah is rooted very firmly first in the Abrahamic covenant and then in the Davidic covenant. Most importantly, God promised Abraham that there would be a specific man, one man, born from his line who would possess the gates of his enemies. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. And Galatians 3 confirms this as speaking of Jesus Christ. But the idea of a coming Messiah, a coming anointed one, is most firmly grounded in God's covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel seven twelve and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and will, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Davidic covenant is referenced in many other places in the Old Testament as well. And it has some key promises attached to it. The first promise is this king would be a forever king. Psalm 89, 3 and 4 says, I have cut a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever. There's a second promise. The king would enjoy a unique father-son relationship with God. Psalm 89, 27, I also will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And then specific to the Davidic covenant with this king, the king would bring peace and security to Israel. 2 Samuel 7, 10 and 11, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not afflict them anymore as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Psalm 89, beginning in verse 22, says the enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of unrighteousness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I've already referenced Psalm 89 several times. It's one of numbers of psalms, sometimes designated royal psalms. You have Psalm 2, Psalm 21, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, and some others. These often have overlap with the current situation of a Davidic king with a simultaneous prophetic view forward to Christ. Psalm 132, for example, 13 and 14, For Yahweh has chosen Zion... He has desired it for his, his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will inhabit, for I have desired it. 
Psalm 2, 6 through 8, you're very familiar with this. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, that is Jerusalem, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And most quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 110 Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. That's just in Psalms. There are numerous other Old Testament passages that point to the coming of Messiah going all the way back to the book of Genesis Genesis 49, 8-12, Messiah would be a king who comes down from the line of Judah, and he's called the Lion of Judah, in fact. Numbers twenty four seventeen refers to a star coming from Jacob, that is, Judah's father. A scepter, a king's ruling rod, will rise out of Israel. Isaiah 9, 1-7 predicts the coming of a king, a child born to us, who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Isaiah 11, a stunning passage, speaks of of the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father. And it takes us all the way into the future of the millennial kingdom and and the reign of Christ in that time. Micah 5, 1-5 predicts a coming ruler from Israel who will be from the same place David was born, from Bethlehem. Hosea 3, verse 5 predicts that someday Israel will return and they will call David their king, meaning the offspring of David. Amos 9.11 says that after severe judgment on Israel, David's fallen house will be restored, rebuilt, and the kingdom of Israel will rule the world as lead nation. Jeremiah 23.5 and 6 declares that God will raise up from David a righteous branch, a king who will reign with wisdom, and he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. He is God. Ezekiel predicts in Ezekiel 34 and in chapter 37 that David is coming back, a descendant of David, that God will gather his people and reestablish them in the land under this king who comes from David. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 tells Israel to look expectantly for a Messiah king. And, and this is so clear. It says, here's how you'll know him. He'll be coming riding on the colt of a donkey. The coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, is the coming of a king. Messiah and king go together. And the Old Testament is saturated in this coming of the Messiah. This is the central overriding hope of the people of God. And so the importance of Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, is so clear to us because this is Matthew saying, This is him. He's here. And he's going to prove it in multiple ways. This is the Messiah who is the king. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is not just a dry listing of historical facts in this genealogy. It is a rich and deep mine of theological truths. It's it's not meant for us to skip over. It's not meant for us to go, well, it's kind of a boring first chapter, but boy, things really get going in chapter two. It's not boring. It is not irrelevant. It's not just an introduction to take up a page in your Bible. Everything in the word of God is here for a purpose. And these purposes always help your faith in the Lord. Now, I have some good news and bad news about this message. 
Uh, the good news is that I'd like to show you seven theological purposes for this genealogy. I'm going to show you seven theological purposes, and, and there's really only one application. The application is for your awe of God to expand, for your worship of God to go up. That's the good news. The bad news is, is that we kind of really struck gold here, so I'm going to have to preach this in two parts. So we'll do some this morning. We'll finish the seven theological purposes this evening. We will get back to Ezra and Nehemiah eventually, I promise. But we're just going to take our time in, in this. Um, once in a while, you, you get a plate of food in front of you and you start to eat fast and you go, hang on a minute, this is really good. So that's what we're going to do. So today is one message in two parts, morning and evening. I'm going to give these to you up front, seven theological purposes for this genealogy if you're a note taker. I'm going to give them to you up front, but I'll repeat them as we go. The first purpose is that Israel is central. Israel is central. I'll repeat these momentarily. The second purpose, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The third purpose, Jesus is Messiah King. Jesus is Messiah King. I'm going to use those terms together a lot just to get it in our brains that Messiah is the King and King is the Messiah. The fourth purpose, the Messiah King is God. The Messiah King is God. The fifth purpose, God is gracious. God is gracious. The sixth person, Mary is anticipated. Mary is anticipated. And the seventh purpose is God is faithful. God is faithful. So Israel is central. God is sovereign. Jesus is Messiah King. The Messiah King is God. God is gracious. Mary is anticipated. And God is faithful. First theological purpose, Israel is central. Israel is central. The genealogy actually helps us remember the basic story of Israel and and shows that Israel is central to the story of the coming of Christ. As a matter of fact, you could use the capital letter N as a memory device to divide up this, this genealogy. If you were to draw, and I'll try and do this backwards, going up from the bottom, down this way, and up again. So remember the, the capital N. The first section starts at the foundation of Abraham and goes upward to the high point, the glorious point of the reign of King David. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, here he is down at the base of the inn going upward. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nashan. And Nashan was the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. You notice that the genealogy starts with Abraham. It emphasizes the very Jewish nature of this list. And you notice that, that Matthew uses his covenant name, Abraham, not his original name, Abram. The covenant name of the patriarch is, is given. This says that this is the result of covenant that God has made with Abraham. And so what this does is it helps the reader of Matthew see the big picture. It shows Jesus' legal line from Joseph back to David, back to Abraham. And this proves, generally speaking, that Jesus is descended from Abraham. That's a major part of the Abrahamic covenant. This is very important because all of the promises to God, to Abraham, uh, include these two, to bring forth offspring, meaning lots and lots of people, 
and to bring forth an offspring, meaning one man to rule those people. Genesis 22 and Galatians 3 confirm those promises, the the dual use of offspring or seed. And so this section starts down here with the foundation of Abraham, reaches the high point of the glorious reign of King David, the king through whom God would promise a forever king for Israel from David's line. Now the second section from King David to the exile, we start in Abraham going up to David and now we're going down, down to the exile. Verse 6, second half. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. And Abijah was the father of Asa. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. And Joram was the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah was the father of Jotham. And Jotham was the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Ammon, and Ammon was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Solomon started the moral slip of Israel by his terrible example near the end of his life. His son Rehoboam failed to keep Israel united, and within 24 months, the entire kingdom split Manasseh would be so wicked that for decades, 53 years or so, he would be the ultimate final straw, as it were, for God to pronounce definite coming judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. And even good King Josiah, in verse 11, wouldn't be able to halt the coming judgment of God. And so we go from Abraham up to the glories of David and down again to the degradation of exile. But the third section takes us from exile upward on the capital letter in to Jesus Christ. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eliezer, and Eleazar was the father of Matthan, and Matthan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now this reads like a crescendo of the Christmas time, right? Just makes you feel a little bit cooler, doesn't it? Now I want you to notice Joseph here. He's explained in humility and unpretentiousness, and embarrassingly, he's even defined as Mary's husband. That's who Joseph is. We're going to see, though, in the coming passages in the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, Joseph is humble, he's obedient, he's very faithful to care for his adopted son, Jesus. So the entire history of Israel is traced as pointing to this culminating event, the birth of her Messiah King. Matthew summarizes this division in verse 17. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Capital N, all of the history of Israel. So our first theological purpose, Israel is central. A second theological purpose, and each will get a little bit more specific, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. 
This genealogy traces 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Judah to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. This is not a coincidence because verse 17 tells us that Matthew did this on purpose. This structure here of three groups of 14 was important to Matthew as the human author. It was clearly important to the heavenly author, the Holy Spirit. Now, to to be fair, Matthew counts some of them twice and he leaves out some people that we have in other genealogies. This was a common practice. It didn't take away from the most important purpose of the genealogy and that was to establish the lineage of the true king of Israel. I want you to remember this. When Matthew was written, the average believer in Christ didn't have his own copy. He couldn't go on Amazon and just order another Bible. And so knowing that Matthew lists 14 generations three times would have been a very helpful memory device. Now, verse 17 indicates the three sets of 14, but it's not quite as simple as that summary uh, maybe makes it out to be. Let me get into some minute details here just for a moment, but it's basically to show you that you don't have to worry about them. So I'm going to fly quickly through this. In verses 2 through the first half of verse 6, from Abraham to David, you get 14 names. Great. Check that one off. That works. The second half of verse 6 to verse 11, David to Jeconiah, you get 15 names, but David has been repeated. Great. We can check that one off. 14. In verses 12 through 16, from Jeconiah to Joseph, you get 13 names with 14, if you include Jesus, phew, but Jeconiah is repeated. So we're back down to 13. But remember, Jeconiah, son of Josiah, and I know you were probably thinking about this just this morning. Jeconiah, the son of Josiah, 1 Chronicles 3.15 says that Jeconiah is actually the grandson of uh, Josiah and that Jehoiakim is between them. And if we recall that Jeconiah's kingly name was Jehoiakim, with an N, which in the Septuagint is spelled Jehoiakim, same as his father, then Jeconiah Ending the second group is the father of Jeconiah, beginning the third group, leaving us with how many? Fourteen generations. And someone might say, well, it seems that Matthew just can't count. Let me give you two things to remember before you get too far down that. First of all, this genealogy has theological purposes, and nowhere is is there a rule that says the genealogies of the Bible, written 2,000 years ago and beyond, have to go by the rules that I put on them. Nothing says that. Pretty much every genealogy in the Bible has gaps in them intended by the Holy Spirit. And you would say, well, that's, you shouldn't do that. We do the same thing. I'll give you an illustration. I have on numbers of occasions pointed out that both my grandfathers were ministers of the gospel, each for 43 years or so. Rarely do I mention that I'm also descended on my father's side from Mary, Queen of Scots, a murderer who was beheaded for her crimes in the 16th century. We leave those details out of our own genealogies, don't we? You know, nobody goes and says, you know, I just wanted to brag that my great-grandfather was a drunk who couldn't keep a job uh, to save his life. I'm really proud of that fact. We leave names out of our genealogies too. And the second thing I would point out to anyone who says that Matthew can't count, saying that Matthew made mistakes in his math, forgets two things. First of all, from a divine standpoint, the Spirit of God inspired this text. And secondly, from a human standpoint, Matthew made his living counting stuff. 
He was a tax collector. As one scholar put it, quote, Matthew could evidently count to 14 as well as his interpreters can. Now, how does this demonstrate the sovereignty of God? One of the results of this structure of three 14s is highlighted by Abraham to David, David to the exile of Babylon, exile ending with Christ itself, himself. This shows that God is working out his plan to bring Messiah at exactly the right time. And I want you to picture that capital N image again. If you're tracing the capital N, as it were, as a graph of God's redemptive work through Israel using Matthew's genealogy, it would go something like this. Okay, we start at the glorious foundation of Abraham and we reach a high point in the glorious King David. But then things start to go downhill for Israel to the low point of the exile. But the next generation includes notable men like Zerubbabel, we're going up, who was instrumental in the return of the exiles. If you go 14 generations to something great, 14 generations to something terrible, and you're going back up charting this, what do you expect? 14 generations to something great. Exactly as God designed it. And the reader isn't disappointed. The high point is the birth of the Messiah. The ultimate point in Israel's history. And by the way, the use of the three 14s shows that God's timing is perfect. That right when you expect something new and lofty to happen, it does. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul confirmed. He said in Galatians 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of the time, it's a word that means the completeness, the finished product, all under the sovereign plan of God. The first theological purpose, Israel is central. Second theological purpose, God is sovereign. Third theological purpose, Jesus is Messiah King. Jesus is Messiah King. There are many kings of this genealogy, but you notice in verse 6 that David alone is singled out as being called the king. Solomon was king after him, but he wouldn't fulfill the messianic promises. He's definitely a foreshadowing in many ways, but he failed morally, he failed spiritually, and he he showed that, that the world and Israel needs a perfect man to sit on the throne of David. You have Judah listed in verse 2 and verse 3. Judah had 11 other brothers, but he singled out because it's through him that the line of Messiah would come. You recall that the dying Jacob prophesied over his 12 sons, and this is what he told Judah. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now the big question is, what is Shiloh? That's often asked. Shiloh is debated. It may mean, until him to whom it belongs comes. That's kingly. The English Standard Version says until tribute comes to him. It could be until Shiloh as a person comes or it could be until he comes to Shiloh which is the place that the worship of God happened before Israel occupied Jerusalem. In any case, four options, they all indicate one thing. He's a king. 
And he's coming from Judah. There are other kingly associations in the genealogy. Jesus is first and foremost, in verse 1, the son of David. And David alone is referred to as the king. In verse 6, that's a clear association. In fact, David is mentioned five times in this passage. Another kingly association, all of verses 2 through 15 generally follow the exact same pattern, except when you come to verse 16. And that pattern is now blown apart and totally different. Let me make the comparison. Verse 15 and Eliud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob. That's been the pattern the whole time. But then in verse 16, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Boom! It's totally different. Here's another kingly association. Just the fact that so many kings are listed. This is clearly a legal claim to the throne. Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the son of David first, that Jesus comes to Israel to offer himself to Israel. Now, obviously, Acts chapter 2, Isaiah 53, many, many other passages tell us that the plan of God all along was for Jesus to be rejected and to die on the cross for the sins of his people. That does not mean, however, that Jesus' offer to Israel to be their king wasn't totally legitimate and genuine. And neither does it mean that Israel's rejection, that they're not responsible for that. Let me show you another kingly association. We have to go to another text. Turn with me to Romans 15 for a moment. In Romans 15, what we're going to see is that God has given Christ Jesus to the Jews, but he'll use the Jews' rejection of Jesus to save others. That This is God's plan. Romans 15 We'll just be here for a moment. Verses 8 and 9. Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is Israel, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the fathers at the end of verse 8. One who would lead the people to come from them. And so the, the Son of God came as a man to fulfill this promise, to verify the word of God. But Jesus came bringing a new covenant with him. And, and the covenant was now inclusive. The new covenant began at the point of offering salvation to Israel and expands outward as an offer of salvation to Gentiles, to the whole world. And look at the resulting joy in salvation. Verse 10, again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. So Christ is clearly the King. He is clearly the Messiah. And it's key that in this passage, Paul refers to him over and over again as Christ, Christ, Christ. Messiah. Turn back to Matthew 1. Is there any other way that Jesus is pointed to as the Messiah King? 
We've already seen that he's first and foremost the son of David. We're reminded of David the king. Just the fact that David is mentioned five times himself points us to this association. The mention of Judah, to whom Jacob gave the kingly prophecy of the coming line of Judah. The change in pattern of verse 16. The listing of many kings. But there's another way that Jesus is pointed to as the Messiah King, and it's a debated issue no matter which way you look at it. But no matter which side you take on this debated issue, it ends up with the same result. So if you leave in the middle of this, you're going to see, say uh, Pastor Steve is crazy. Don't leave in the middle because you need to hear the whole thing. What is this debated issue? David's name, three letters in Hebrew, has a numerical value of 14. This is what's called a gematria, the assigning of numerical values to each letter in order. This is a practice that originated, guess who, with the Jews. It originated with them in biblical times. It spread actually to other ancient languages and cultures. Now, I want to be very clear. This is not a primary Bible interpretation, nor is this the secret code of the Bible. But there is enough discussion of this practice to warrant its mention. The, the, the three Hebrew letters spelling David are the fourth, sixth, and fourth letters of the Hebrew alphabet, adding up to 14. This was very possibly a memory device for what? For the 14 generations of each section. That may be why Matthew made certain that there are 14 in each list. Three letters, 14 as the value. Now, in favor of this view is that this would be a very typical memory device used in Jewish literature, much like the acrostic poems found in Psalms and elsewhere, which are used as memory devices following the Hebrew alphabet as a memory trigger. Also in favor of this view is that we ought to take a very suspicious look at anything said to be a coincidence in the Bible. There are no coincidences in the Bible. And also in favor of this view is the fact that Matthew was an accountant. And he was a numbers man, and this might have appealed to him. But against this view is the fact that Matthew wasn't written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek. And the number value of the Hebrew name wouldn't be apparent to Greek readers without explanation. And the number value of David's name might only be coincidental. But on the other hand, yes, it's written in Greek, but it was written first to Jews, every one of which could spell David in Hebrew. So, which one is it? I'm not going to take a position because it doesn't really matter. Because no matter whether you think this is a really, really neat memory trick that Matthew put in here, or if you're suspicious of anything that feels like a secret code in the Bible, in either case, people, when reading Matthew's genealogy, have been speculating and arguing about the 14 value of David's name and whether it has any relationship to the three letters of his name and the 14 uh, in each of those three lists. No matter which side you fall on, what has been the results of this discussion, of this argument? A continual conversation on the fact that Jesus is the king who comes from David. And the discussion goes something like this. Well, there's David, but there's Jesus. There's David, but there's Jesus. There's David, but there's Jesus. I don't think the point of the debate is which side you take. I think the point is to have the discussion in the first place. That Jesus is the Messiah king who came from David. First theological purpose, Israel is central. Second theological purpose, God is sovereign. Third theological purpose, Jesus is Messiah, King. Here's an important bridge, important, important bridge. Fourth theological purpose, and the Messiah, King, is God. 
The Messiah King is God. The genealogy here makes it abundantly clear that Messiah King is a man, but it also shows us that He is God. And right here in the very genealogy of Christ, we have the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ, which we spent all of Steadfast Bible Conference looking at last week. How does the genealogy given here by Matthew demonstrate the deity of Christ, that Messiah King is God Himself in the flesh? Well, first of all, remember that we saw in verse 16, it's completely different than verses 2 through 15. It just kind of blows apart that pattern. But let's get more specific on this. Beginning in verse 2, we have this repeated formula. Was the father of. These are the famous begats of the King James Version. This happens 39 times. And it's always an active verb with the father as the subject of the phrase. What does that mean? It means that the father was the instrumental cause of the son. And we get that. That's a biological fact. But in verse 16, the exact same verb is used, but this time it's used in passive form for the first and only time in the passage, and it's translated by whom Jesus was born. Same verb, but it's passive, and it's not connected to Joseph at all, but to Mary. What does that mean? It means somebody else acted to place Jesus in the womb of Mary, and that somebody was not Joseph. The only option is is that Jesus is divine. I want you to notice this also. No one can say that Jesus is holy and righteous because of his family. There's no pattern of righteousness in this genealogy. You don't look at this, if you know your Old Testament at all, you don't look at this and say, wow, these are the best men and women who have ever lived. Wicked kings like Rehoboam and his son Abijah had offspring who were good kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat. And in turn, they had offspring who were wicked kings like Joram. The holiness of Christ was unrelated to his family. Jesus is separate from sinful humanity in that his holiness supersedes any sinful family history. He's holy because he's God. But these aren't even the most blatant declarations of the deity of Christ. Just the fact that he is called Christ, anointed one, three times in this passage is a statement of deity because the anointed one, the one sent by God, must, according to the Old Testament, be God. And so calling him Messiah, calling him uh, Christos, Christ, is a statement that he is God. And I'd like to demonstrate this to you. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48. And in Isaiah 48... God himself is going to declare that the one to be sent to earth must be God. We're going to get straight from the the, the heavenly throne room here, as it were. God himself declaring that the one who is sent to earth must be God. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Hear me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called... I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Hear me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Now, if you're familiar at all with your New Testament, this sounds a lot like uh, Jesus, doesn't it? The title first and last, in fact, form the bookends of the book of Revelation. God's final scriptural revelation essentially given to the Jews 
In Revelation 1, the Apostle John sees one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And now John records his reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am, what? The first and the last. You go all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. In the third to last statement by Jesus in all of the Bible, he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So when a Jew is reading, for example, the book of Revelation, He's not going to miss this connection because God calls himself the first and the last twice in Isaiah. Isaiah 41 and here in verse 12, I just read you from Isaiah 48. What is God doing? He's setting up the Jews to get ready for Messiah and Messiah must be God. But there's more evidence of this. Skip down to verse 16. Draw near to me, hear this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. So now, Lord Yahweh has sent me and His Spirit. Now, we have a little technical issue we have to look at, and that has to do with quotation marks. If you're still using the English Standard Version and a few other English versions, the end of the third line, from the time it took place, I was there, that's where you see the close quote, that God is done speaking. And then it said that Isaiah says, so now Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. That that's Isaiah speaking about him going out into uh, the world and, or into Israel for his ministry. So I need to delve into this little technical issue for a moment because this issue of punctuation is important. In the Legacy Standard Bible, the close quote is at the end of the verse, not at the end of the third line. Dr. Bruce Metzger is a major reason we have an immaculately accurate Greek New Testament today. And he wrote a landmark series of articles called Persistent Problems Confronting Bible Translators. If you can't sleep some night, read that. You're out in a page and a half. One of the challenges he talks about is the use of quotation marks to indicate who's speaking. And he says this. Don't include this in your quiet time tomorrow. This is just for your knowledge. Since there are no quotation marks in any of the manuscripts, the decision of where to insert these in the translation is totally in the hands of the translators. Naturally, the opinions of translators as to appropriate punctuation will sometimes differ. There is no infallible rule to follow. Judgments must be based on what seems to provide the fullest and most appropriate sense in the context. The beginning of a direct quotation can usually be determined without any trouble when it is indicated by a verb such as said, asked, replied, or the like. But problems can arise concerning the close of a quotation, especially when it is the final sentence of a series of comments in a conversation. Now, why bore you with talk of quotation marks? The choice of where to begin quotation marks is usually fairly obvious. For example, verse 12, Hear me, O Jacob. Okay, obviously, that's where you begin them. But the choice of where to end a quotation 
is another matter altogether. In verse 16, God is speaking, draw near to me, hear this, from the first I have not spoken in secret, from the time it took place I was there. Most English translations close quote right there. That God has finished speaking there. In the ESV, we get a close quote, and that makes it appear that the next speaker, so now Lord Yahweh has sent me in the Spirit, is Isaiah. The Legacy Standard Bible, however, rightly lets verse 16 speak fully, putting the close quote at the end. And you say, why does that matter? Because now who is speaking? The speaker continues to be God himself. Draw near to me, hear this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. So now Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. Why is that a big deal? Because God is the one speaking in the first place. And he says, God has sent me. God has sent God. Who is the speaker from at least verse 12? It's God. The speaker is Messiah King. Verse 12. Jesus says, Hear me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. This is God speaking. By the way, this is the clearest Old Testament proclamation of the doctrine of the Trinity. You cannot get away from it. The Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. So what is God through Isaiah preparing the reader for? God is preparing them to meet Messiah who must be God. He is a man born of a virgin. He is God who has never been born. He has always been. And in Matthew's genealogy, Israel is introduced to him in grand fashion. I hope that you're seeing how mighty God is. I hope you're seeing a glimpse of his glory and his wisdom. I I hope you're seeing a little bit more just how important Messiah, King, Jesus, fully man, fully God is for the redemptive plan of God. And I trust that your view of God has expanded, that your awe of him has been elevated because Matthew 1 is a stunning proof that there is only one king of all the kings and one lord of all the lords. Well, I have a confession to make. I'm saving all my favorite parts for tonight. We'll do the fifth, sixth, and seventh theological purposes of the genealogy tonight. I saved my favorite parts because the focus will be primarily on one of the topics we haven't looked at much yet, and that is the women in this genealogy because they play a massive and major role. So I'm eager to do that with you tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for our beginning time in this genealogy which is just endless in its treasures and its riches. We thank you, Lord, for giving to us your word, for making it so abundantly clear that we need never guess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is Messiah. Lord God, for any here today who do not know Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as King, as Messiah, We pray that this would be the day that they would bend the knee to the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords and that they would repent and that they would ask forgiveness for their sins from the one who promised, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.